I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. If you aren't invited to the cool party, do you sit there and go, I'm not cool enough to be at that party? Or do you go, fuck them, I wouldn't go to their party even if they invited me? And then you get an invite and then you go. What's up, y'all? Happy Thanksgiving. We're back with Rebel Radio, the Thanksgiving edition. Uh, let me just say I'm thankful for our friends at Dash Radio for broadcasting our show every Thursday at 6 p.m. Pacific. And for our partners over at EDM.com for making all this possible. You can find Rebel Radio on iTunes, on SoundCloud. We're kind of everywhere now. We're on Stitcher, if you use that for your shows. If you use TuneIn, we're on TuneIn. Who knows where else we might be? Keep looking around the corner. Look under your Christmas tree. If you're setting up a Christmas tree this weekend after Thanksgiving, check for Rebel Radio. Who knows? That was Cassie you heard earlier with her favorite quote from today's guest, Steve Rennie, the Ren Man, host of Ren Man MB, your online music business educational resource. He hosts a kind of a college of sorts through YouTube interviews, audio interviews, and uh, lessons from leaders in the music industry. If you're trying to learn about the music business, trying to get your game on, Ren Man is the way to go. He blesses us today with some serious wisdom. Uh, one of my favorite things he talks about is that your love for something is tested not in its best moments, but in its worst moments. So it's all good to say you love your job or your career when everything's going really well, but do you love it when it's not fun? That's really what matters because that's what's going to make you keep showing up and get it done. So uh, we're going to get into the interview. I know you got turkey to get to, or maybe you're listening to this after the fact and you're still full. Rebel Radio is scientifically proven to aid with digestion. So if you're full of turkey and non-GMO stuffing, then uh, maybe this show will help you out. Before we hear the interview, let's hear the EDM.com track of the week. This one's from Gil Chang. The track's called Dandelion. Here we go. 
James said I'm supposed to say the track of the week after it plays, but you know what? It's Thanksgiving, man. I'm, all the rules are off. That's that's what happens on Thanksgiving around my house. That was our track of the week, Gil Chang with the track Dandelion. And now let's get into the interview with Steve Rennie, the Ren Man. Welcome to Rebel Radio. Our guest today, Steve Rennie, the Ren Man. Nice to be here uh, in the in the quasi dark. This is very vibey, Josh. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, thanks for being here. Mm. I've been I've been hearing about you from our mutual friend Ethan, Ethan Bear. from from EDM.com, yep. who was a guest on the show. Yeah. If you don't know, EDM.com is a they're a, uh, a co-presenter of this show uh-huh. with us, so they're they're a very important partner. Okay. To Rebel Radio, and we're here taping in in uh, Mike Karen's studio. Okay. Mike He's is been kind a guest of our, on the show. I know you've had him on the yeah. show. Beverly Mike's kind High of our graduate. patron. Yeah. He's kind of our patron saint. He is gives he, us. The, we should try to go up and say hello. Absolutely, uh, yeah. He takes care of us, gives us the space here to do this. Good. And and so I've been, you know, I found out about the show uh, about Red Man Live uh-huh. through Ethan, and now have been watching and listening. And you had uh, your interview with Paul Tillet, who's one of my heroes, the creator of Coachella. I thought was brilliant. Yeah, and He's really, a great guy. yeah, it really brought. You know, I've known Paul for number of years and we've worked together here and there and you know it really brought to life like what a special guy he is and and yeah. how just amazing his vision yeah. for for Coachella and what that's meant yeah well he's a great example for people out there that are that are looking to do something because I, I met Paul it seems like he must have been 14 because he's still we used to call him the beef uh-huh. you know, for most of your audience won't remember leave it to beaver sure. but i'm sure you could google her it's on <laughs> no. some cable channel yeah. and beef was this you know innocent young kid and there's wally his wacky brother and then there was eddie haskell who was the local you know kind of miscreant uh-huh. and so forth but beef was unaffected by all of that so yeah that's what i always think about with paul Tillet. And he still got his baseball hat and he's you know got a few more lines on his face and um but he's uh living proof to just stick at it Mm-hmm. do what you do yeah. and um he's never seemed to want to be anything that he really isn't so it's fun doing red man live i get a chance to see people that i've known for a long time and you get a right. chance to talk to them and you always find out things you didn't know but um paul i I've, it's been fun to watch him and some of the guys that work with him mm-hmm. um um you know the the whole warp tour with kevin lyman kevin was his backstage production manager guy right. and yeah. we used to promote shows at the hollywood palladium when uh, there was a guy by the name of Gary Tovar that was actually the uh, the, the godfather of Golden Voice, and he was uh, in the produce business. Um, and uh, sure, that's how we met. Yeah, absolutely. Always good green at the Palladium. Yeah. 
Well, I want to hear about the old days and how you got started. Uh, for anyone that doesn't know, though, Grand Man Music Business is a, it's an online school. How, how would you describe it? You know, it's, I'd say it's a great place if you're interested in the music business. As, as an artist trying to do something on a creative level or, or somebody like myself that's not a, a creative person, you know, that wants to be involved on the business side, um, it's a great place to learn about the music business if you believe that learning and interacting and talking with and getting advice from people that have actually done it yeah. is important. And yeah. for me, uh, I'm, I've always been about the doers. I'm not interested in theorists. I'm not interested in philosophers. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe that makes me a shallow person, but that, <laughs> that, that that's of no interest to me. I'm interested sure. in people that have done it, whether it's somebody playing golf. I love playing with golfers that are better than me. I had a tournament this past weekend. I got killed by a guy. <laughs> who was a big-time tennis player. Now he's retired. His name is Marty Fish. Retired from the – it was a top-10 tennis player in the world. He's retired from tennis now. Oh, he wow. plays golf. And he kicked my ass. And yeah. he goes, dude, don't you hate playing Marty? I said, hate it. Fuck, are you kidding me? I, I couldn't get enough of it, yeah. okay, because you want to play. Yeah, that's how you Whether learn, Whether it's the right? music business or golf or tennis, whatever, you want to play with people that are doing it because you can, you can learn from them. And I think a lot of people, when they first start off – go, well, I can't do that. I'd be intimidated. I go, fuck, get over that, man. Mm-hmm. Go in there. And if you're going to screw up, do it around people that have been there and done it because right. they've all screwed up too and you'll learn something and, and it'll yeah. actually help fast track you. So Redman MB is really kind of, you know, a place where, you know, through no grand plan other than, that would be nice to talk to some of my buddies and maybe some people can learn, mm-hmm. is turned into a place where if you're serious, you know, I'd say, folks, don't don't waste all that money going to some university that's going to hand you a piece of paper right. that isn't, tr- with all the greatest respect, isn't worth the paper it's written on sure. in the music business. Yeah. If you're a doctor, different. If you're a lawyer, you're an engineer, um, different. But learn from people that are doing it. So we've had a lot of those folks on the show. Um, why, and, is, uh, why is the music business so different from... These other professions you talk about? Um, it's a great question. I think you can start with that the product itself is um, it's, it comes from emotional mm-hmm. place, right? Mm-hmm. Creativity is not something we're going to screw this on here, we're going to tighten this bolt here, we're going to put this rocket fuel in here, and if everything goes right, it should go. Yeah. Uh, those are logical things that have you know a bit of science and so forth. In music, it, it's it, it's beginning is an emotional release for a lot of artists. You ask people, you know, why the fuck would you do this for a living? And almost to the man or woman, they all say, because I have to do this. So yeah. that's not necessarily a rational thought. <laughs> sure. So let's start with that at the core of it, the product is not rational, it's emotion. And, yeah. and emotions can take you in all kinds of different places. And then you try to put a business wrapper around that and, and to try to contain it and, and, and to try to make some sense out of it. And it winds up being a business that, that, that's difficult to write down the steps. It's not like if you do one, two, three, four, and five, mm-hmm. you get six. It could be anything. So, yeah. um, so getting your head in the right place to, to deal with that kind of environment mm-hmm. is key to it. And so, um, you know, I think that's what makes it tough. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and then you throw in all kinds of other things like you're trying to 
judge people's taste. What what might grab your heart or or, or hit a nerve in you might not work for me, you know. And you'll, you'll see it all the time when people are, are playing rock critic. Oh, I think Ariana Grande's bullshit or I think this artist is bullshit or, you know, whoever it might be. And yet millions of people think it means something to them. So mm-hmm. I learned a long time ago, for me, don't play rock critic. Mm-hmm. But it but it speaks to my personality. If I'm like about results. If people are doing it and they're and they're making some ground and headway, I'm looking at that, not trying to figure out how to be. Oops, sorry, different than all of those folks for the sake of being different. Yeah. So it's uh, it's a tricky business on the best of days. Sure, but incredibly gratifying when you get it right. That's what keeps everybody coming back. Well, I got to tell you, I wish that uh, that Renman MB had been around when I was getting started. So I, I started. It's not too late, business. Josh. <laughs> well, it's, <laughs> it's definitely too late. Um, you know, but I started out in the music mm. business. I was mm. a manager. Uh-huh. Crazy and, you know, fuck. Coming out of college mm. and, or you know, even in college, and it occurred to me I had we had the Baker Boys on the show recently, uh-huh. who were clients of mine uh-huh. in the '90s, and you know. And I had a discussion with them on the show that I wasn't a very good manager for them, largely because I ran into some roadblocks and mm-hmm. I didn't know what to do. And I didn't know, I wasn't wise enough at the mm-hmm. time to ask for help. Yeah. And uh, and I just sort of was like, just keep banging my head up against the wall and maybe it'll crack open, you know, or maybe yeah. my head will crack open. Yeah, one of them, yeah. And so, you know, having a resource like this, and, and I think, you know, in a broader sense, just you know, the, the internet and the access to information that mm-hmm. we have mm-hmm. is, is a game changer. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think in, in, in some ways, um, as difficult as it is to connect with people in the music business, you know, I would argue that it's easier today than it's ever been. Sure. Okay, because there weren't things like the internet. There weren't resources like this where you could go to find information. And, and you're not alone in the fact that, I think, and it's particularly true for young people, and I say that as a former young person, hard to believe, um, that you you want to you want to be smart, you want to seem ahead of the game, and so asking a question or saying "I don't know" feels like w- weakness. Yeah. And over time, you learn that that's not weakness. Right. You know, saying "I know" when you don't is actually stupid. It's worse than being weak, mm-hmm. okay? There's weak people that are smart enough to cover themselves with people that can fill in their blanks. Stupid people just do stupid things. So yeah. um, I learned very early on um, from this little old lady that I used to caddy for. I've always been a fan of sound bites, you know, mm-hmm. the little thoughts that stick. And I remember I was out caddying for her one Friday, and I can't remember what it was, but I was talking about something, and she said, Stevie, you don't ask, you don't get, right? We use that around the office. But it's fucking true, right? And so these are these little nuggets of things that have stuck with me over years. So when young people are trying to figure out what the path is or what are the little dots I need to connect, I go, no, no, you, you won't find it in your details or your details. Get up a little bit bigger than mm-hmm. this, okay? Mm-hmm. You want something to happen. You need to know what the answers are. So what are you going to do? Do your homework. And that means asking questions. Today you can Google almost freaking anything, right. okay? There was yeah. no Google back in the day when I started. Right. So these are great resources. But at the big picture level, you have to accept that, okay, I don't know. 
Um, and saying I don't know is not weakness. Saying I don't know, but I'm going to figure it out right. is what I look for in young people. Yeah. The people that go, I don't, I don't know. How do you, I don't know. And it, after about three I don't knows that aren't followed by, but you know what, Steve? I can see you're, I'm going to go do a little homework and try to sort this out. Mm-hmm. That's what attracts me to business people, right? Yeah. So it isn't their experience. It isn't their degree. It's mm-hmm. their attitude. Mm-hmm. that I'm looking for, that ability to sit there and go, well, fuck, I don't know. And it's funny how the, the, the big managers that I've known over the years all have that mentality in their own way, which is, wow, I don't fucking know. Get so-and-so on the phone. Get right. Get me fucking army. Right. And, and they immediately go into fact-finding yeah. mode, right, sure. versus the people who go, well, nobody will return my call. And I just go, well, what's your point? Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Keep calling. Okay. What's your point? Are you ready to quit? It's too tough for you? Then I'll wait. You can leave. You know, <laughs> somebody will take your seat. No mm-hmm. shortage of people that want to sit at the table. So right. um, that that attitude, yeah. whether you're an artist or a professional, is is the most important thing. And, and, and so I hope some of the stuff that we've done on our website, when I've talked to these different people, I always ask them questions I know the answers to. Sure. Right? Mm-hmm. Because it's the big picture that I want people to, to, to figure out, which is... These people just, I'm going to do this somehow. Mm-hmm. And, and they figured it out, and they were relentless, and they stayed in the scoring zone where something good could happen. They weren't just waiting for the yeah. answer to right. come walking through the door. It doesn't happen that way. Or it hasn't happened that way for me. I, I shouldn't so so general. So let's talk about how this played out mm-hmm. in your career. So I know you've been a manager, right, for yep. Incubus, among Amongst others. others, yeah. Um, I think you you ran Epic Records for a while. A record right? executive at Epic Records. Okay, yeah. was a, and then and then if I understand, you started out as a promoter, right? I started as a concert promoter first. Before Avalon, I started my own company. Okay, um, and I think it, it speaks to that kind of attitude thing, which I look back now and I think that some of these things that I talk about and I'm conscious of today, I wasn't so conscious of at the time, but I was exhibiting it. Right? I, yeah, I had, uh, was booking shows back in college, and I was talking with my son today. What's what's the first I, show you booked? Back in college, um, it was either oh god, it was I can't remember. I can tell you the shows I booked over the the, the highlights. There was Gil Scott Heron, there was Eddie Money. Nice. I know I wanted to book Cheap Trick in the worst fucking way possible. <laughs> you see that black boy over there running scared? His old man in a bottle. He done quit his nine to five. He drank full time, and now he's living in a bottle. See that black boy over there running scared? His old man got a problem, and it's a bad one. I remember when I started and left college. You know, afterwards, I tried to get a job working at William Morris in the yeah. mailroom, right? And I knew all the agents there because I'd been a buyer in college, and I learned very quickly, much better to spend your money than mine. Sure. Okay, I can do that with no freaking conscience, and that's, yeah, that's <laughs> just, I wish I could do that every day. And so I'd met some agents, and I got, and I caddied a local country club where I used to caddy in the group with the chairman of William mm. Morris and all these cool. people that Smart. just, was it, but it wasn't, it, it turned out to be fortuitous, but it wasn't, that was my love of golf. Right. In, in, it wasn't in, a plan. It wasn't a plan. And I worked at a club where right. there were lots of showbiz. But that painted in so many ways my attitude subconscious that I saw successful people in right. the entertainment business. And mm-hmm. I saw them 
you know, if you're not a golfer, you won't appreciate it. I saw him on a golf course where golf is a sport, has this way of exposing the real person. Yeah. If you cheat on the golf, you will cheat in business. If sure. you are going to bitch about everybody else is the reason you're not, you're going to be that person in the office, mm-hmm. you know. And so it gave me, a, a, you know, a, a look on things. But anyway, long story short, they, I applied for the William Morris mailroom. I went through the whole process. Everybody, I knew I was going to be in, right? And they did a degree check. I mean, I, I've been going to USC on a, on a a debate scholarship oh, cool. after going to Santa Monica College, where I started booking shows, um, and uh, they wouldn't let me in. And I used all my contacts at Hillcrest Country up to literally get a meeting with A. Blasfogel, the, the chairman who was so old they propped him up in a chair, <laughs> you know, like Fidel Castro, except he was about four feet tall, and there was a guy, Norman Brokaw, and all these guys. And all of them are sitting there. I know half of them in the room go, how the fuck did this kid get all us here to get, you know? Anyway, long story short, they say, well, kid, you got to go back to to college and and finish up your degree. And I won't go into the reasons why I didn't finish, except that I figured out how to turn scholarship credits into cash. Nice. Uh, Not a great long-term move, but certainly solved some short-term problems. Anyway, I couldn't get in there, so I wound up starting my own concert company, which was Uh crazy. But I talked for guys that were two were in the finance business two were lawyers who were rock and roll dudes and it was back in the roaring 80s where everybody's shoveling blowing party central and and i was like hey yeah fuck, we'll give the kid you know these these guys gave me 25 grand to go book concerts and right. kids asked me how'd you do that i go i i, I can't even tell you yeah. how accepted i was on a mission to make something happen i don't even remember how i met these freaking guys you yeah. know but you know that got me in the game and then eventually after picking Avalon's pocket a couple times through relationships, both of which started with golf, not to get on the golf thing, but speak to networking and building a real relationship with people. Mm-hmm. Um, I picked their pocket a couple times and they decided to hire me. You know, and that's so that's great. how I got to Avalon Attractions, wow. by yeah. being a doer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there was no grand plan. It was just right. me out there going, <sighs> Right. <laughs> you know, in yeah, every moment right. I thought it was gonna end. Yeah. And honestly, for almost 40 years now, I still feel that way. Uh-huh. You know, is that, that it could all just end tomorrow. My wife kids me about it the, all the time. She goes, how much money would you need before you would calm down? I said, I, I, don't, I don't think it's about the money. Right. Yeah, it <laughs> sure. Yeah. So what is it about? What, what is the, you know, you said you started out, you were, you were on a mission, right? Mm-hmm. And that drove you. Where'd that come from? You know, um, I've loved rock. Yeah. You know, if, if you ask me what the, the great loves of my life, but I'll start with my family, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and rock, music, and golf were the three consistent, two consistent before I had a you know, wife and kids. Sure. Were like the two common denominators for me. And that's mm-hmm. why I sometimes feel like the most boring guy in the world that I just did stuff that I, I knew how to do and that I enjoyed doing, and you it remember, worked out, <laughs> you know? Do you remember when that light turned on for you? I can, t- I can tell you when the light turned on. When I, when I, was, when I got out of high school, uh, I loved playing golf, and it, and it has been my longest love affair of my life. I started it when I was 14, and just it was like freaking drugs for me, man. Mm. And uh, so when I got out of college, I went to or high school, I went to college for a semester, wasn't really into it. I was going to Santa Monica College. I didn't have a rich dad to pay for it, you know. So um, and I didn't enjoy it, and and so I I thought, you know what, I want to be a golf pro. I want to I want to be 
Jack Nicholas was the yardstick back then, not mm-hmm. Tiger Woods. And um, and so I did that, and I quit, and I worked, you know, caddying at that country club. And then I started working in the golf shop, and then I got my PGA apprentice card, and I had visions of going on the tour. And um, and over the course of three or four years that I did it, I showed up every day at crack of dawn just like I was today out there. Yeah. Waiting for the sun to come up at Bel Air and, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, my cup of coffee. I didn't smoke cigars back then, but, you know, that was my routine. Ironically, here I am 60 doing the same freaking thing, you yeah. know. But that was what I really wanted to do. And then at some point, it just became obvious to me that my dream of playing on the tour was going to end with me teaching little old Jewish ladies how to play golf, which is not really what I had in mind. Sure. And so I thought, fuck, okay, um, this isn't going to work out. You know, I grew up in Beverly Hills, and you know, and when you grow up in Beverly Hills, you're going to be a doctor, or a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And if that doesn't work out, you better be something in show business. Would right. be like a real generalization of it, right? So I went back to college with the thought of going to um, law school and becoming a lawyer. And um, when I got to college, the first thing I did was take a class in in public speaking. I thought, well, if you're going to be a lawyer, you're going to have to mm-hmm. get comfortable speaking to people. And so. That little twist of fate led to meeting this guy who was teaching the class. He said, ah, you're pretty good. And he had another guy who'd gone to Beverly Hills Catholic School, who I'm still friends with. Mm-hmm. Same thing. He was kind of a degenerate in high school. I don't want to say degenerate, but I got suspended once for you know ditching school for a week, not to do drugs, but to caddy in the L.A. Open. <laughs> got caught by the freaking assistant principal who saw me on a Friday because he was ditching the afternoon no to way. go out to watch the L.A. Open, too. And so anyway, I got to Santa Monica College. And so the, the coach of the debate team, me and my partner, would go to this debate tournament. It was the oddest thing. We're like these two kind of quasi-stoners, you know, and with all these geeky guys. And we win the first tournament against all odds. And it wasn't because we were the smartest guys. It was yeah. because we stood out like sore thumbs amongst <laughs> these geeks. And people liked to say, well, these guys are funny. Look, these guys are sarcastic. And so anyway, he had the genius idea. Hey, Steve, we need to increase our budget. You need to run for student government. I guess student government. Are you fucking kidding me? I'm not going to run for student Anyway, yeah. we did it. I get elected vice president of the school, and the guy who was booking concerts comes up to me one day and goes, you know, um, I don't really like talking to agents or managers, um, and he's the guy in charge of booking concerts. So this is like <laughs> a, the doctor tells you, I'm a little nervous about blood and cut and stuff, but let me go ahead and take your heart out, right? Like, Whoa, hang on, doc. So anyway, he goes, um, do you want to help me? I said, fuck yeah. I'm thinking, I'm sure. And so I immediately jumped in there. That guy stepped all but stepped aside, and that's how I got started. Yeah. And I think the very first time I went from being the rock fan to going, hold it. I'm the guy throwing a freaking party now. And everybody wants to meet me. I like this a lot. you know. And that's how I started. And uh, so that was really an extension of that guy that would go to concerts and the Rolling Stones and the Who and mm-hmm. Led Zeppelin and be sitting there on the edge of the seat and those lights would drop and you're going, right. oh, that's God, awesome. this is going to be fucking great, right? Yeah. And I never lost that feeling over my 40 years in the music. Every time Incubus went on stage, it would be like they go, okay, I've got him in the tunnel, drop the lights. And I would always be at the sound desk going, fuck yeah, I love this. I'm not to close my eyes, go no. But there's a cold wind going far On the top of the highest I rise today It's not a breeze cause it blows hard The sand it wants me to discard And the humanity I don't watch the warmth blow away
Yeah. So that's that's kind of how I got started yeah. doing it. Um, how did that change for you? I mean, I think it's it's great that you, that, that energy has, has stayed with you. Um, but I imagine it must change when it goes from this thing that you're doing because you love it to, like, this is my company and my profession mm-hmm. and my career. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. It, you know, because it doesn't, you know, when it's easy to look back and think of all the great moments and and. and and kind of bury the the moments that weren't so great, right? And, and I've certainly had a, a few of those. But um, you know, I think if you love what you do, um, and I'll use golf as an analogy again, right? I love playing golf, mm-hmm. but you have an expectation, sure. and you start to spend time at it, and you want to think that your time and energy will be rewarded, and oftentimes it's not, right? And so that you're you're your love for something is tested, you know, not in its best moment, but in its worst moments. Mm-hmm. And so I kid around all the time when I play bad golf, you know, I'll say, fuck, I'm quitting today. Uh-huh. And everybody will go, see you in the morning? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because I quit six times a week sure. and I start seven. Right. And, um, and the music business can be really frustrating. And it can be for the reasons we talked about earlier, that it's not just about logical stuff you know you play in a golf tournament the low score wins every time mm-hmm. end of story mm-hmm. all that's why they have the 19th hole so everybody can cry and bitch about their day um the music business doesn't have a 19th hole you know right. and, and and it's played out with real people and artists that um that struggle with different things like a kid around about you know that fear and insecurity and mm-hmm. are part of people you know and we all have it and paranoia and all these things that that, that everybody has, but I think they're particularly acute in the music world, mm-hmm. particularly from artists' point of view, when you're putting all your stuff out there, and people are going to judge it. Right. And sometimes they're not going to judge it um, as tenderly as you'd like, you know, and, and that's difficult to stomach. And so if you're a manager on the one end mm-hmm. of that, you got to deal with that and try to inspire and keep everybody together. And, um, and I think because the nature of the music business is it really is – nowhere or somewhere if you ask me you know and anything in between is really a snapshot of you moving in one direction there this notion that 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 kind of floats around that there's some middle class or some middle ground in the music business certainly hasn't been my experience you're either happening making money or you're Mm -hmm. not right Mm -hmm. and um and that's what makes it heightens all of that even more versus if you had a job at a company where you show up from nine to five and you're working for Johnson and Johnson, you know, they're not going broke anytime soon. Right. You know, they, they yeah. make their numbers, things go on. You hit your number, you've hit your budget. You know, it, it's much tighter and tidier yeah. Yeah. for the people that want it to be tidy. Mm-hmm. Um, music business isn't tidy. Um, well, one thing that struck me, you know, as I got, out of management because mm-hmm. I learned that that wasn't my yeah. path um, and started working with corporate brands. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, around that time I heard a, a statistic published that uh, this was, you know, late 90s, that like 95% of records lose money. And yeah, probably more, I bet. Probably. And <laughs> certainly I think now that's yeah. that whole dynamics mm-hmm. change. I mean, the definition of making money has probably changed. Mm-hmm. But you know that that struck me at the time we were doing some work for Toyota, and I just mm-hmm. thought, what if you know if ninety five percent of their cars lost money, mm-hmm. they wouldn't have a business. Yeah, you know probably something like zero percent of uh-huh. their cars lose money because 
as you said, they structure yeah. things yeah. a certain way. Yeah. And, um, you know, I don't know. For me, that made me question, like, how is this a real business? I think it's, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I couldn't agree more with you. Um, but it is a business. Sure. And, and there, are, there are winners. Somebody's yeah. winning mm-hmm. every day. Yeah. When the stock market is crashing, somebody's winning that day. Mm-hmm. The guy that bet or the gal that bet that it was going to go down, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, you know, hard to imagine that Katy Perry thinks it's not a business or the managers. You know, we were right, talking to my son and I on the way over here. A good friend of mine is a guy by the name of Richard Griffiths, who was really my mentor at Epic Records, who kind of gave me that last piece of the puzzle that I needed to see to to make me the best manager I could be when I found an act, Incubus, that had those requisite talent, energy, great performance that needed the business element mm-hmm. because those things work off of each other, right? Yeah. And um, anyway, he left the, the, the record business eventually and became a manager and got hooked up with... Um, one Direction, mm-hmm. and I had a chance to play golf one day with Harry Styles. He's a really good kid and a pretty good golfer, and um, which you know sort of bummed out all his fourteen-year-old friends. Why is he playing with this old guy? <laughs> because the old guy plays golf. And anyway, we were talking about One Direction and whether they're a great band or one for the ages or whatever. But I can tell you, they're five years in the sun. Yeah, I know what that looked like, and that looked like a business. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Sure. Here's the interesting part of it, for artists out there that might be fortunate enough to get to that place. It's easy to think that that's going to go on forever when in the big scheme it's like you get five years in the sun. And one of those lessons that I've been preaching, which is very crass but very important, is get the money. Mm -hmm. Because when you do have that opportunity to score in the music business um, and you forget that it's a moment, not a lifetime. For some, maybe it's a lifetime. There's a few, the Rolling Stones. and It's like two handfuls maybe, right? But there's some there's some great moments out there, and I hope for all these artists that are out there. You know, Chris Brown always comes to mind with the cars and the mm-hmm. eight cars and the lunacy and the lawyers. This guy's a case study for somebody who's going to walk away, have made a lot of money, yeah. and be doing Geico commercials mm-hmm. to pay the rent, and that's mm-hmm. stupid, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, so you know, get if you're lucky, folks. Whether you're an artist, a manager. Be smart. And some of my young buddies in the business that I talk to now, they all give me how well they're doing. And I turn into dad every time going, dude, don't piss it all away. Yeah. What would happen if you got fired tomorrow? Would you still be a big guy? Yeah. And would you be able to pay your rent? And a couple of those guys go like sober. I mean, I'm thinking, think about it, dude. I've watched it too many times. What about the artists who don't want to go after the money because it may not match their identity? Easy. What do you tell that, them? That, that's like, the you're just easiest... going to have to struggle. <laughs> no, no, because if they don't care about the money, um, Cassandra, then they have the easiest recipe to fill in the world because they probably won't make any money, mm-hmm. right? And right. it's like, then it's a hobby. And, and again, I, some of your folks I know, I'm going to scare them because I'm not talking about culture. I'm more about reality. That's you know? all right. We it, need a balance. It yeah. is that, you know... Um, you probably won't make any money in the business. And if you are doing something where you do it strictly for love and not for money, that's a hobby in my mm-hmm. world. That's mm-hmm. golf for me. Mm-hmm. But I think artists got to be honest with themselves because people say that to me. Well, I don't really care about making money. And I go, great, then you're going to do great. Right. Yeah. Um, 
But is that That's true? That's not really what they meant. Right. Yeah. They, 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 it, it, and I'll give you the analogy. You know, when if you aren't invited to the cool party, do you sit there and go, well, I'm not cool enough to be at that party? Do you go, mm-hmm. fuck them. I wouldn't go to their party right. even if they invited me. Right. And then you get an invite. And you yeah. go. And then you go. <laughs> I know. It's so funny. Right? That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. It's just a way for us to I never to, wanted like, to work for the big promoters. In fact, the funny story, is true story, is that when the, one of the partners at Avalon eventually hired me, right, said, hey, we'd like to come, you know, and think love to have you come and work at our place. I sat there with just the greatest confidence and stupidity and told this guy, you know what? I just want to be king of my own castle. And he looked at me. You don't have a castle. <laughs> and he just looked at me like, are you out of your fucking mind, kid? Yeah. And, and, I, and I remember still sitting in that office going, oh, shit. I'm used to sitting here talking tough with my buddies over right. beer and smoking weed. Sure. I'm in here with a real tough guy now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he just went blank on my best pitch. Well, you got anyway. Three, yeah. four weeks later, I joined up on the team here, and all my buddies said, "Randy, I thought you weren't gonna." I said, "I changed my mind." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. Because I wanted to be part of the club. Yeah. Right. Well, that's one of the things I find so interesting about the music business, and such a um, corollary to what's happening in mm-hmm. in business mm-hmm. more generally today is is just the rate of change. Yeah. Right. That uh, you know, like you said, you can be on top of the world this year, next year. Not so much, mm-hmm. right? That there's not, um, you know, there's not this straight line mm-hmm. to success. Yeah. Uh, I think it's that way for everybody. Mm-hmm. I talk to, you know, I talk to, I've, you know, I'm friends with people that are in all kinds of different businesses, right? And uh, I think in the music business, we want to make what we do, you know, really unique sure. and special. Yeah. And I think it's because we're just kind of fluffing ourselves a little bit, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But in the technology business, how much are things changing, right? Absolutely. Right. In in the airline business, how much are things changing? You know, in every business, you, how about the car business, right? Yeah. You know, I, I have a Tesla, right? So I've, the last two years I've been driving around a Tesla. It's like a souped-up golf cart. You walk mm-hmm. up to the car, the door opens, you sit on the thing, the thing goes, you step on the gas, you don't even put the key. Now somebody banged into me, and now I'm driving a real car again, <laughs> right? And I'm reminded. Yeah of how far ahead Tesla's vision is. Now, whether the company succeeds long-term or not, right, if you were sure. short in the stock this week, you'd be great. If I had bought stock in Tesla the same time I bought my Tesla, I could have bought five freaking Teslas, yeah. right? Um, but they are way out ahead mm-hmm. <laughs> of the rest of the people. And so right. now that's forcing change. And so I see you know, the BMW electric car, and, the, right. and all sure. these people are going, oh, that guy's fucking crazy. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Really? Yeah, and I think we see that in music all the mm-hmm. time, right? That that music is is relies on trends, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, Pop music for certain. Certainly, you know, I tell the story when I was a manager. I had um, an opportunity to meet with Eminem, who was looking mm-hmm. for a manager at the mm-hmm. time. His album hadn't come out yet. Yeah. And I said, "Man, eh, white rapper, I'm I'm good. No one's gonna buy that. Nobody's gonna buy that. Right? Yeah. And you know, <laughs> and then." You know, three years later, every major label had a white rapper, yeah. and and everyone was playing catch up, and and because yeah. culture yeah. dictated what was yeah. going on, right? And mm-hmm. I think, you know, the the, the Tesla example is a great mm-hmm. thing. It's just that in music, I think that happens faster. Oh yeah, and I think there's um, there's a there's a image, there's a illusion of stability. Mm-hmm. 
maybe in other businesses. Yeah. That that is an illusion, but I think in in music maybe we don't have that pretense. Well, because you know, when you think about it, pop music, you know, it's it's really what is about the moment, right? And um and that's is based on what people are buying into, where their headspace yeah. is at at any given moment. We we're talking in the office. I don't want to pick on Megan Trainer, right? But we were talking <laughs> about great moments versus careers, right? Yeah. And so even though I've retired as a manager, I can't stop playing armchair manager. I become like John Madden up in the booth without Michael. Well, you know, Jesus Christ, all right, you know. So you know, we're we're. Um, Looking at the chart things, and, and for, for some reason yesterday, I just thought I'm going to go through all the fucking songs on the Billboard Top 100. Yeah, you know, and so we get to Megan Trainer, and it says this is Megan Trainer's fourth single from her record. And the first one, eight weeks, you know, it's all about that bass. Mm-hmm. And then she released another one, and it was number four, right? Great. And then she released the third one, which was number 14. And I said I'd have stopped. Yeah. At three. Yeah. Because if the next one is 25, the people in the business yeah. are going to go, she's over, done. right? Yeah. Right? And and so I don't know who her manager is, and she, uh, maybe I'll get a fucking horrible email or somebody <laughs> will shoot me or whatever. But if they call me up, I'd sit there and go, dude, get them yeah. off the racetrack. Don't mm-hmm. keep showing down in the music business, man, because yeah. people will head for the exits. Now, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe this new world of the music business and all these young kids that are doing it today are going to come up with a different recipe. But that's when I think the big picture is bigger than all of this. Right. You get your moment. Mm-hmm. And the the ones that turned it into a career had more than one moment, but they also had somebody guiding right. <laughs> and yeah. playing, you know, puppeteer a little bit, going right. painting a picture right. and, and so forth. So um, I hope your next single does great, Megan, because I sure did like it's all about that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh man, yeah, I sing it forever. It was culture house. because it winds up in TV shows yeah, that, sure. because it comes that snapshot. So maybe that's the song for a summer or the spring or whatever it was. Absolutely. So can the fans not save that? Like you said, the music industry sees that happening and then they're like, she's over. But are the fans saying that? If you look at Justin Bieber, the guy over the last couple of years on paper was doing everything wrong. Right. 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 And I started to sit there and think, well, I hope he kept his money. And I say that because there's a little house right above my house. It's not a little house. It's this wall of glass. And we've had all kinds of idiotic neighbors. If somebody built this house on spec, it's all glass, which is if you wanted to be, you know, in a display window, uh, it'd be great. Anyway, he rented this house for, what was it, 60 freaking grand a month. So I'm sitting there thinking how much money this fucking kid is spending. And he'd get kicked out of every neighborhood, Mm -hmm. right? And uh, now he's got another hit. Yeah. And so I sat there and think, well, if... If Junior was working through his worst moments of being 18, 19, which is fucked up even on a good day if you don't have the whole world watching, to be fair to Justin Bieber, yeah. right? Um, maybe now he's going to live through his very public adolescence and turn out to be something bigger than he was showing in his worst moments, mm-hmm. right? But they're mm-hmm. rare. Yeah. <laughs> in right. golf, you get a mulligan if you miss your first sure. one. Your buddies want to give you a mulligan. There's no, there aren't many mulligans in the music business. Not really. But to his credit, you know, here he is right. again. Well, I think, you know, Cassie brings up an interesting question that, you know, is uh, the technology has in many ways democratized music, mm-hmm. right? And it's given fans a voice that they may not have had mm-hmm. in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, I wonder how much of that is uh, is real, meaning, you know, it, I think in the past maybe it's been easier for the industry, the labels, to control the path of an artist. Mm-hmm. You could, they could just keep investing money, right? Um, Eventually, though, they stop unless they get sales. Sure. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. Um, but, you know, I wonder, like, I mean, we've had this argument about – uh, you know, you can look on YouTube and see what's it's getting the question. most plays. And is that a real barometer of good music? To your question, are those things real, right? It's real if those people in my world, they're, it's real. And it's real if you want to build a career, if they feel so strongly about you that they'd come to see you in concert, that mm-hmm. you were so good that you'd come again, mm-hmm. okay? That, that you introduced yourself by doing covers because you were very handsome or very cute because all it seems to me so many of these kids have the same sugary little voice everybody's working the same side of the street right that that maybe somebody jumps out of that and becomes a big star justin bieber is a good example this kid sean mendez you know has a very sugary pop sweet little song on the radio that sounds to me and i Go ahead, send me the email, Steve at Random Management, folks. And he sounds just like Justin Bieber and all these guys. So yeah. what is he going to do to distinguish himself and say this is what makes him unique, mm-hmm. right? So 9 million fans on YouTube is the absolute minimal commitment, right? Mm-hmm. All they have to do is click like. That's not like paying nine ninety nine for the album. It's not right. like paying $50 for a ticket. Right. It's not like watching your biggest hero flame out in public. That's a no commitment. That's like winking across the bar. Does that mean you're getting married? You yeah. know what right. I mean? Yeah. So I think that whether though, and I think those numbers can be manipulated too. You can go out can. and yeah. hire Viral or any of these things, and you yeah. can buy views and so forth. And you could argue that you know when products are advertising on TV, not 90 million football fans are interested. They're trying to figure out here's 90, can I get 9,000 or whatever it might mm-hmm. be. Um, but what'll be interesting to see is how many of those sensations turn a little bit of smoke into fire. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the real the real yardstick and isn't it interesting that Justin Bieber got on a major label has a big time manager I don't know who Sean Mendez is managers but I'm betting it's somebody legit by mm-hmm. now and the records being put out on a real label and they're bringing in all the freaking songwriting guns right. so they've inserted this face right. this name sure. into the machine mm-hmm. the great artists in my opinion don't get created by the machine you mm-hmm. can't create Adele, mm-hmm. right? And she just opens her mouth and sings. It's just like that's as real as a heart right. attack. You know what I mean? When she mm-hmm. did that thing at uh, someone like you at uh, not Carnegie Hall, uh, Royal Albert Hall, mm-hmm. and the tears. I mean, you're saying that's somebody who cut their veins and is bleeding in front of you. That right. that's a different breed of cat, in yeah. my opinion. And sure. if you, it will last longer, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. This is like, I don't know how to word this question, but, you know, you said music, the the industry goes by trends, but can a record label take somebody who's not, it's not trending yet, new, and make it a trend with all the resources they have? Can you force something like that? You you can't force acceptance at the end of the day. Right. That, they, people are either, it either connects or they don't, but... If somebody who has talent takes time to develop and that that talent is developing and and that the, quote, market might be out here and act might be here, Mm -hmm. right? 
I hate to reminisce, but I'll say it. Back in the good old days of the music business, when they were making a shit pile of money and they were yeah. hosing artists 18 ways, there was a lot more money. So labels like Warner Brothers could take a chance with an act and have them break on their third album, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, Incubus broke on their second album and the third album. So, and they were, you know, I might be biased, but they were a very classic development mm-hmm. story. Yeah. No single to radio on the first one. No real video on the first one. Just tour support and banging it out and doing all the right stuff. Um, could the labels do that? I think, yes, they haven't lost any of their ability to. What what mitigates it mightily in today's world is this short attention span. Labels aren't making the kind of money they used mm-hmm. to make. So whether right. you love them or hate them, I'm here to tell you they are not making the kind of money they used to make. And if anybody doubts that, let's get a piece of paper out. I'll wait, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. If you sold 30 million records, Alanis Morissette, yeah. okay? And the label was getting $10 wholesale, mm-hmm. okay, which they were, mm-hmm. okay? You couldn't buy the single off the album. You bought the album, right? So that was $300 million on that record. Take the biggest record of the year, Taylor Swift, mm-hmm. 3 million copies sold, I know. right? Mm-hmm. So just do the arithmetic. You yeah. love them, hate them. They're, the biggest winners now are doing 10% of what the big winners did back in the day, and that has an impact. So mm-hmm. I think it impacts, uh, Cassie, their patience in their staying power, they need to see it right now. So right. where people might have gone on a date and, you know, send you roses and flowers right. and, you know, and a little right. wine, now everybody's like, are we doing this or not? Right. Yeah. And so, if you're not great, I'm out of here. Right. So is that <laughs> That's is a that, bad, horrible example for people, but. Is that no, scary for the music industry? Losing that patience and not actually seeing quality through or. It puts a greater onus on talent to show right now. And I think that's why. You see, the, 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 the record business has gone, always gone to the things that work, right? Mm-hmm. So I was going through the, 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 the charts yesterday and couldn't believe how many Max Martin songs were on there. Now, this guy's had 80 freaking, he's like the go-to yeah, guy, sure. right? And so they're going to keep going to him mm-hmm. until there's nothing else there, right? So it speaks to they want it now, so everybody's going to help you more. Or they want right. things that they know how, okay, she's pretty, she's great. We'll give her some songs. We'll get Max to do this. We'll have right. her do makeup. We'll have her go and sit at Kim Kardashian at the Fendi show with Kanye West while he's trying to figure out his next fashion, you know, mm-hmm. all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's why Bob Lefsetz, who was on our show yeah, recently, that was a great who, interview. I used to not like Bob that much, but we get along great now because he has he's very biting on his analysis of yeah. things, right? Which is, there ain't real artists out there. If real artists are the ones that stand up and sing and make you cry with a piano, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, right. okay, and you're not like checking out, you know, her gear and her outfit and her, right. you know, that it's all manufactured because they sure. need it right now. Right. right. And they're going to keep going to things that work because in business, successful businesses try to, at some point, mitigate risk, not add to it, whether you're a music company or not. Mm-hmm. So that's what makes it interesting today from right. my perspective. But can a- they do it? Sure they could. Do they have the patience and the resources today? Debatable. Right. But so, but so is yeah. it a problem? Is it a problem? It's not been a problem for Katy Perry. It hasn't right. been a problem for Rihanna. It hasn't been a problem for Jay-Z or Beyonce. Mm-hmm. If it, It's a problem if you're Bob Dylan today. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you know, I agree, and I think if you're if you're a rock fan, if you're a hip hop fan, um, you know, the the way I grew up, like these, um, the Bob Dylans of the world are are critical mm-hmm. because although they don't sell a lot of records, Dylan, you know, is he's a household name now, mm-hmm. right? But in his mm-hmm. day, like you know, he wasn't a mainstream act, mm-hmm. um, but they inspire other artists mm-hmm. to go out and be great. So, mm-hmm. you know, Jay-Z talks about, you know, in interviews how he was inspired by a layer of guys who most people have never heard of, mm-hmm. but he was always trying to outdo them or trying yeah. to live up to the standards they had set. So what happens what what happens to that in this environment with the labels that you're talking those about? Those artists, this is my just my opinion. Those artists who are so clearly fueled by their own sense of what their true north is. Mm-hmm. They are being who they are. Yeah. They're not being crafted, right? Um, if they get it right, if they stay in the game, if they're in it because the music business is screaming so loud, I have to do this, Cassie, right? They're going to be in there. Mm-hmm. And, and if they keep doing what they're doing, Hosea writes some great, those are pop songs, but that's I hear the lyrics in there, yeah. man, and you can feel it in mm-hmm. his voice. You know, now does he have ten years of that in? I don't know, mm-hmm. but that's a different breed of cat than no disrespect. It's all about the bass, all right. about the bass, which is all about right now, right now, right now, right. Yeah. Versus things that are a little bit longer. So I think for artists that are really serious about this, um, they'll demonstrate it by doing what the Black Keys did. Right. They're grinded out. These guys are in their mid-30s. They're not yeah. kids. They defy yeah. the logic. You don't break after you're 30 in the music business. Right. But they did. Mm-hmm. And somebody asked me, well, why did they get over earlier? I said, maybe they weren't as good. Yeah. Maybe yeah. they needed time to develop. Maybe every shitty album informed the next one, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe planning enough shitholes around America got them in tune with what happens when you make a record, which is as Brendan O'Brien said, when you make a record, it's perfect. It's supposed to be, when you play live, it's all about the moment. Right. You know what I mean? Sure. And so when, when they finally got a bigger team, a bigger platform, a bigger partners behind them, they seemed like they came out of nowhere. But right. the truth is they were 15 years in the making. I might be off on that. But I got to believe they're still doing what they've been doing for a long time, you sure. know? Yeah. And so that's the test. And when I talk with people about the business, I said, you know, it's so easy to think I, I want to be a pop star. I want to be a big manager. I want to be a, I want to be Scooter Braun or whatever it might be. And, and you're looking at the end product, right? And you miss mm-hmm. all the places where they were fueled with fear and insecurity and doubt. Yeah. And I'm right. ready to hang it up and I can't do this another day. And, it's fun. I'm getting tired of everybody slapping me on the ass going, hey, that's great, and I can't pay my rent. Yeah. And, and that's the test of commitment in the music business, mm-hmm. and, and particularly, you know, cutting edge for artists. Yeah, sure. You know? So, so talk about some times when, when that commitment's been tested for you and what's gotten you through it. Um, you know, I, you know there's, it's, I can't think of specific moments. I can think of specific moments in general ways. I remember when I was first as a manager, I had gotten my job at Avalon Attraction, and I killed there. And I had my old boss, Brian Murphy, on our show last week, and it was fun kind of reminiscing with him. But, you know, I had what I thought was my dream gig working as a concert promoter. But what happened was I started seeing all these managers, yeah. right, that were 
I was, how are you doing? How's it been? You know, and, and I wanted to be that guy. So I got married, and then six months later, I told my wife I quit my job today. She goes, really? Great. You know, to be a manager, right? Mm-hmm. And so I managed a bunch of cool bands, Ned's Atomic Dustbin and the Wonder Stuff and Drama Rama and Da Da and Primal Scream, all of whom had something going on, right? We're playing the K-Rock, Christopher Sows, Weenie Rush, all this stuff. Okay, what is it tonight? Please just tell me what the hell is wrong. And I can remember a couple times being in, you know, coming back from New York City where I'd have to fly to New York City, you know, and uh, meet with the label. And none of these acts are making any money. So there are two things that come to mind that I'm going to get white thinking about. One, I was sitting in a freaking laundromat mm-hmm. in somewhere in fucking New Jersey. And I was managing the Wonder Stuff and Drama Rama at the time. And they were both playing gigs there. And I wasn't making any money. And both of them... You were good guys were just being the worst side of being an artist from a manager, but whining, bitching, crying, and you know, and sitting there and watching all these kind of housewives, and it was like the classic, you know, gum chewing, you know, gal with the you know big butt, you know, and the stretchy fucking pants. And I remember <laughs> sitting there going, "What the fuck were you thinking about, Steve? Leaving your fat fucking gig where everybody wants to meet you, everybody wants yeah. to know you, so you can get them a parking pass, mm-hmm. whatever." And my boss, Brian Murphy, has been at Avalon. He's been there for years. I could have been there for years, right? And thinking, oh, my God. And then driving to the airport from New York City back in the 70s and 80s where there'd be all kinds of burnout cars off to the side of the road. It looked like a war zone. And I can remember getting – I would always get depressed flying back from New York just going, what am I doing here, man? Mm. What the fuck am I doing here? Mm -hmm. And and, and so much so that when Richard Griffiths asked me to come to work at a label – I couldn't say yes fast enough because all of a sudden then I got to be the rock star. I'm staying at the Four Seasons. I got right. the car to pick me up and ring, ba pop, ba boom, all that stuff. Yeah. And um, and that was those are moments I remember. You know. Yeah. Um, there there were moments along the way with Incubus, but I, I won't go into because they're you know they're still out there and, and mm-hmm. that's like family. But there were moments where we were all tested. Where sometimes. As a manager, you you have a sense of what the right thing to do is from a business, from a rational, from a playing field point of view. And a band or a band member is, I'm an artist. Right. Where they want the artist exclusion, which means I don't want to have to be burdened by any rational thought or implications right. or ramifications. Handle it kind of thing. And I can think of moments there where I just thought, fuck. Yeah. You know? And I suppose ironic that that was when we were all making money. So mm-hmm. the, the, the money wound sure. up not being right. really the fundamental issue. So, was, so what gets you through yeah. that? You know, um, you know, you sometimes I don't know. You just you know, I, I would stay in stay in it, and then something would turn. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what it comes down to. And I, and they give it an incubus. We used to talk about it all the time. How many times? When we needed something big to happen, a tour, a this or a that, mm-hmm. it happened. It was it magic. No, we were always out there fishing. We were always out there banging. But you know, right. most of the time, you come back and you don't have a fish on the end of your hook. Right. You know yeah. what I mean? And um, so, ex- I, so I've said that to people. I said you just got to keep fucking showing up, man. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't show up, right. 
Nothing good can happen. Right. Showing up sometimes, bad shit can happen, Steve. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Right. But nothing good can happen unless we show up. So you show up. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah, that's you true. know, it's funny. Somebody told me again, I've said it a million times, you only need one or two great yeses mm -hmm. yeah. at the right time to change everything. Yeah. Golf, you know, you can hit it all over the ballpark, make a long putt, bang, all forgiven, right? And that's life sometimes. And, and it's, it's unfair sometimes because I can think of it, countless people that I reckon were great professionals and great managers that didn't have the right horse at the right time. And why? Um, don't know. And I know from my own fear and insecurity, I go, don't think about it too much, Steve. Just <laughs> yeah. Don't think too much about it. Yeah. And mm -hmm. that make, does that make me a shallow man? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Sure. So you mentioned some mentors along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, who who have been the most important mentors for you, and what, what have they taught you? Well, two of them in particular, and one was on uh, our little web show last week, a guy named Brian Murphy, and he was the face of Avalon Attractions, which was the big promoter in, in, in town here in the 80s. And he had a partner by the name of Bob Geddes, and uh, they were two very, very different characters, you know, and uh, Bob grew up in Southern California, was a Riverside kid, went to UCLA, was an All-American linebacker, played professional football, had a jock, competitive, mm. swing a bar stool at you mentality, right? And uh, really kind of Clint Eastwood intensity about him, right? And, and it was a certifiable tough guy, right? And then you had Brian Murphy, who was like this really soft touch kind of guy. He got upset, I think, when I told him he was a soft touch. I don't mean that in a weak way. That yeah. was his way was to be patient and work through people and so forth. So when I talked earlier about that meeting where I had a meeting with the guy, I told him I wanted to run. That was Bob, mm -hmm. bad guy to have that conversation with. My bridge back to the company to save my ego and to be the guy was Brian Murphy, who could have said, you little fucker, you passed on us. Like so many people, fuck you, right? But Brian was like, so how's the castle? And, yeah. <laughs> and, and we were, we were co-promoting a show together. Yeah. And so he knew all the right things to say. And so between those two guys over seven years, I had the Brian Murphy patience approach to look at. And I had one guy in my area going, fuck that, just do that. And then, and, but I would see the patient approach work. And there were times when I'd see that the patient approach in the music business, sometimes your willingness to do the right thing is viewed as weakness by people and they want to test you, right? right. And, and for those folks, you need to give them the hammer mm -hmm. to look at, right? You'd be like, whoa, I don't want to go there, right? right? So I said, somewhere between those two frames of reference, came me. I think if you ask me, I, 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 my predisposition was probably much more to the hammer mm -hmm. guy. Mm -hmm. um, but having seen the patient's approach work, it definitely you know taught me, particularly with artists sometimes, even though I'm sure all the guys in the Incubus would, would, might take issue on any given issue we might have dealt with, you know. Yeah. Um, I recognize that you need to, you, you need to have a, a, a repertoire of pitches and having a high, hard one in the music business in mm -hmm. your pocket, Yeah, always good. Yeah. And even when I've looked at business people, I want to know they got the high, hard one, but then the first lesson I give them, I need to know that you can nip a corner here because we don't need to throw heat at everybody. It, 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 
takes too much energy for everybody. You don't have as many in you as you think. So yeah. parcel those out um, carefully. And, That's good. And, and only when people really deserve it and when they do, make sure you just bang them so everybody yeah. can see and go, wow, geez. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't want to go there. <laughs> sure. No, that's great. I mean, I think the way you describe it, like it, it's easy to see that in a partnership where one mm-hmm. one partner can be the heavy mm-hmm. and right. Yeah. Uh, but to summon mm-hmm. both of those within yeah. yourself, I imagine. My, my is, other great mentor, well, is this guy Richard Griffiths I talked to you about, and um, and we had him on the show too. And I don't want to make this a shameless pitch for my show, but these are things that if you're interested in the music business, yeah, you know, you should watch those episodes because Richard was, you know, very English, very, we used to call him King Richard at Epic. Um, and cause he made it very clear that he was the King and Steve, you are a knight at the round table, but mm-hmm. I am the King. Right. And he taught me how the business really worked. And there was another guy, the chairman of the company by the name of Dave glue, who was this work a day Cleveland dude, you know, lifted weights and was a team player and, you know, he showed up at 8 o'clock in the morning when I was working at Epic. I would go back every month. I'd go back to, to New York for a week. And I'm a chronic early riser. So, you know, nobody showed up in New York before 1030. So right. I'd get in the office. I'm thinking, what the fuck? I don't want to stay in a hotel. So I'd get there at 8 o'clock and Dave Glue would be there. And he taught me so much about the music. But the, but the best lesson was the simple one. Steve, hear me tell you about the record business. It's all about set up, set up, set up. Right? which is take the time, organize what you can organize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, for artists, that's presentation. Make sure your presentation is going to add to the music. You know, don't mm-hmm. put up, a, you know, these kids that I put up a couple of videos on my website and it's some video with clinking glasses across the fucking room where the band sounds like shit. And they'll go, what do you think? And I said, I think you're an idiot. And like, what do you mean, man? <laughs> Take that shit down. It doesn't help you. Right? It's presentation is part of that setting things up. So I yeah. learned a lot from him mm-hmm. and I learned a lot from Richard about how it really goes. And I learned a lot about record company politics and motivation, you know, that people are in there, they're trying to get their bonuses. And, and so yep. the, this notion that the record company is doing it for you needs to be taken with a grain of salt. Not that every idea is shitty, but it needs to be taken with a grain of salt. And, and so having seen that from those two guys on the inside was really like, for me was the fine that when all these kids send me their notes saying, I'm I'm taking my master's certificate from Berkeley. I go, I took my master's certificate in Dave Glue's office in Richard Griffith's office at Epic Records. Yeah. And your master's certificate doesn't mean jack shit. <laughs> but if you watch Richard Griffiths in a couple of these interviews, you'd have a much better understanding of why your piece of paper may not be as important as sure. understanding how the business really works. Right. Yeah. Am I scaring you yet, Cassie? No, I love it. <laughs> no, this is stuff we, we, you know, I don't, I've never actually seen any of your um, academy stuff, but I feel like I just need to watch it because this is like lessons mm-hmm. we learn in our business that everyone needs to yeah. have. Yeah. The lessons are universal, you know. Mm-hmm. It's funny. Yeah. People, um, you know, I had a little league coach back when I was uh, 11 or 12 years old, right, and we're practicing double plays and baseball so I'm thinking about baseball now the playoffs mm-hmm. and all that and uh, so I remember one day you know going so I take two steps and just kind of snag the bag and I'm going through this whole thing and he goes stop Steve when you think too much you hurt the ball club okay <laughs> and people want to make the music business I think 
sometimes more complicated than it really is, and it can be very complicated. Mm -hmm. But at its core, it's as simple as if you don't have great songs, if you don't have the ability to be a great performer, right, and hopefully have both those, you're probably not going to have a chance to make money in the music. But now, you could be a songwriter who can't perform, but you write unbelievable songs. Max Martin, nobody even knows what he looks like. He could walk right. in this room, I wouldn't have a fucking clue who he is, right? Mm -hmm. He can make a living, right? Um, Rihanna doesn't write her own songs, but she's a terrific performer, got an undeniable thing about her mm -hmm. and a great voice she can succeed, you yeah. know? When you put both of those in the same package, right? Home run, right? Yeah. But without that, it's there's nothing there. So everything after that becomes kind of like gravy if that's the steak. And and so for, for folks out there, it, it's really simple. If you're gonna make money as a manager, you know this, Josh, there's only one way, folks. You have to have a big act. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're a well-respected manager, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. If you want to have a career in the music business, um, as opposed to maybe a great payday, you need to be able to do it over time. Probably 10, most big artists have had what you would probably go back in time and see 10 years of prime time. Right. Say the Rolling Stones have made a living off of 10, 12 years of prime time stuff. Yeah. Certainly the case with Incubus, you know, you too. The, mm -hmm. the core of the songs that everybody wants to hear, probably 10, 12 year period, yeah. right? Yeah, I think, I mean, we've spent a lot of time thinking about that, that, that the, that on the artist side, mm -hmm. you know, if you got 10 years, you're, you're set for life, right? And you're not you only set for life. if you remember to get the money. Well, I don't necessarily <laughs> mean financially, right? Yeah. But in terms of your, your legacy, your, your impact that you've mm -hmm. had. Yeah. On, and that's even, you know, a yeah. lot of guys do it in less. Mm -hmm. But very few go beyond that. Yeah. And the ones that do, <clears throat> yeah, it's a handful. It right. really is a handful. And the interesting yeah. thing is you'll see for, for the artists out there, the common denominator you'll see amongst those artists um, you know, sad that I'm not with Incubus anymore, but they would qualify in some ways, is that they've had a, a long-running group of people that were there from very early days mm -hmm. that managed to make it through all of that gestation period and the big period, and, and then, you know, no matter how high you are, if you're you 2 coming down the backside of the mountain and you can still play five nights <laughs> at Staples Center and everybody thinks you're over, well, sure. in terms of being good hip be in the over. moment... Right, which is Bono's thing. Apparently, he just still wants to be hip in the moment. Bono, these kids think you're as old as their grandfather. Mm -hmm. You can't. You can, all you can be is a hip old guy, mm -hmm. okay? And you're fucking filthy rich. Get over trying to be hip. That's that whole fucking apple kerfuffle. We're important for everybody. No, you're not. Yeah. Right. But you're still important to your fans. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you know, you know, if you're lucky enough to get to there, you are in freaking hollowed ground. How important is that? I want to talk for a minute about about brands mm -hmm. in music, right? Mm -hmm. and, and you bring up a good um, point. And, and when we work with brands, right, there's obviously mm -hmm. this tension sometimes between our existing fan base versus finding new fans, right, mm -hmm. or, or customers, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So how important is that, is playing to your core versus trying to expand to new audiences? I think you need, if you're writing great music, Right. And doing all the things that attracted your original fan base in the first place. I don't see how you lose them. Right. Mm -hmm. If your fans believe they know who you are and you do things that are consistent with who you think they are, it works. And an example comes to mind. I saw 
you know, last year they had those great Target commercials with uh, Gwen Stefani. Oh, yeah. Right? So Gwen Stefani was being Gwen Stefani in those, mm-hmm. right? She was being just Gwen. Okay. I don't know. I, I love her, right? Okay. Yeah. And um, so I would argue that that actually added to her thing because mm-hmm. she was still being herself versus if she was, I can't think of what it would be, did some commercial that was totally whack. Right. And totally outside. If she was doing a Geico commercial. Yeah. Right. right. You know like what I mean? Mountain Dew. Or Mountain Yeah, Mountain yeah. Dew. Right. <laughs> now I heard one on the radio or on TV that I think is the start, sadly, of a Christmas campaign. Of all of my favorite things. And it's a, yeah. they don't show her, but it sounds like Gwen Stefani. Right. Wow. So I heard that and I thought, well, I can almost hear her singing that to her kids. So that's good. Right. Eric Clapton back in the day, in the early days of brand sponsorship, you know, beer companies were always the greatest promotion guys out there. Right. And and Anheuser-Busch in particular were really good. And they had a big campaign uh, first with Eric Clapton Mm. doing a Michelob commercial. Oh, right. And it was great because it was Eric Clapton in kind of this blues. But it fit Eric Clapton's thing. And then they had Phil Collins doing uh some things. So they'd always kind of worked in there. So I think when those brand things sync up with the person you think you know, mm-hmm. they wind up being great. When you yeah. when it's clear somebody's just out there as a celebrity shill, uh, I think right. it takes on a different edge. Yeah. You know? How do you, how do you in, in the context of, of Renman MB, um, do you guys do you think about or do you talk about the, the concept of selling out? Me selling out or are they artists selling out? Well, I talked about it with the band a lot when we were back in the day, you know, and and this I won't get out of school. Brandon is very much the artist. Sure. Right. And uh, and and I say that in in almost the cliche of the artist, you know, he I kidded around that, you know, Brandon hadn't been successful in Incubus. He'd have been carving candles out in Topanga Canyon. Mm -hmm. I can see that. And. and I mean that in a good way because that's who he is. Yeah. You know, that's he, yeah. when he says I, would, I didn't really do this for money. He 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 means it. You know, um, remember when 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 they started to have real success, right? He was more concerned about that and felt uncomfortable with it, right? Yeah. And then at the same time, you know, you have all the trappings. He's a handsome guy, so there were models at every show. I, mean, I can't tell you all the things that are going on. So in a way, the cliche life comes to you, right? Sure. And so we had a lot of conversations back in the day and I think over time you know I said look Brandon you this is what you do man you write songs you write you paint you do your thing you're doing what you do mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. and this is fucking America okay mm-hmm. and if you're great at what you do okay you'll get paid for it for Christ's sake you know the dog the bounty hunter was in I fucking know. jail okay <laughs> then he became the greatest bounty hunter and somebody said this guy's got personality they right. turned him into a team but that's dog the fucking bounty hunter okay right. and he gets paid for that okay right. yeah I said so there's nothing wrong with being great at what you do and getting paid for now if you hosed everybody if you had everybody thought you were writing these songs 
Robin Thicke, and you really weren't. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And you were selling something bullshit. Is that selling out? Yeah. When we had a Honda sponsorship early on in their career, and we had that conversation, well, I don't want to feel like we're selling out. I said, it's not selling out. The people that like your band are driving Hondas. Brandon, you don't go out there, but I walk around sure. constantly yeah. at crowds and so That's forth. Really cool. And you guys have funny art and, and distinctive stuff, which they're going to put on this car. But more importantly, on a business level, you've taken a million dollars from fucking Honda is going to allow us to keep the ticket price low to Mm -hmm. add to the production value here. And these guys are so happy to be in business with you and happy to represent you in their product in a way that works that um, it, it it allows that we're going to get them to run advertising so right. we get a bigger bang for our buck and I think you know over time Brandon got more comfortable with it because it was just Brandon this is what you do for mm-hmm. a living right. mm-hmm. if you really want to be a starving artist that's the easiest one in the world to do if you want to balance it it's a little bit trickier so I don't think you need to sell out mm-hmm. yeah to do it, and if it all gets down to, are you doing something that's really who you are? Because right. <laughs> I think people, Bob Les had the greatest line last week. We was talking about the people haven't gotten smarter or whatever it was. He goes, people just have better shit detectors than ever, and I think that's absolutely mm-hmm. true. And bullshit yeah. detectors, in, right. in in particular, I would say. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's great. All right, let's go to some Twitter questions. Yeah. Oh, um, Twitter. Twitter was blowing up. Okay, yeah, these so I'll have to really be brief. That's well, all right. We'll, we'll, okay. We'll, yeah. We'll edit if we need to. All right, this one's from Debbie Wallace 5. <laughs> Incubus Who man. says she knows you. Oh, yeah. Uh, would you ever consider managing a band again, missing your savvy ass? <laughs> um, I've thought about it. I said one day that Incubus would be the last band I manage, and as I sit here today, um, I'm happy to be John Madden sitting up in the booth watching. Right on. <laughs> but uh, I miss you, Deb, and all the Incubus fans, greatest fans in the world. Nice. Seriously. Yeah, well. Well, we have another question from Debbie Wallace 5. Okay, Debbo Wallace 5, right? Okay, another question from Debbie Wallace 5. What music is turning you on today? The Weeknd. Nice. Love him. This I know. She told me don't worry about it. She told me don't worry no more. We both know we can't go without it. She told me you'll never be in love. Oh, I can feel my face when I'm with you. But I love it. Uh, looks like Who's another this? Incubus fan here from Tara and Esther. Ask Steve why Brandon needs to take his shirt off so much. <laughs> Not that I mind. Because he can. <laughs> <laughs> and Absolutely. if I looked like Brandon Boyd, I'd have my shirt off too. <laughs> nice. Is that it? And by yeah. the way, all the Incubus fans love it. They all talk about it. But they, they, there was a period when he wasn't taking his shirt off and people didn't like it as much. I have, yeah, sure. Um, I told I have, him, take that shirt off. Fuck. It's sure. weird, but I think Incubus, in my high school years, I'm 29 now, so. You're 29? Um, yeah. That's hard to believe. So, Can you believe it? <laughs> when I was in high school, I listened to Incubus every morning from like 6.30 to 7.30, every single morning for like two years straight. 
in like the darkness getting ready for school and so when i hear incubus today it's like it kind of stops me in my tracks and i just have to sit and what think. was your favorite song drive probably drive. yeah I mine mean, was aqueous transmission oh, yeah, yeah that, nice. that one's good but like just listening to you talk about them like i just want to yeah. go home and play it because like that you know, was it's funny. just so high school for me. Yeah. Incubus was like that's when you think of like the keyword chart of like high school. Think prom, like you know, the jock jackets <laughs> and stuff like that. But I literally go incubus prom. Like that's that's the first keyword that comes to mind. It's why, you know, that's the power of music. You know, is that um, it? It's it's a snapshot for some moment in your life. Some good, some bad. You know, yeah. and um, in. And that's why there are people like Deb Wallace that have seen the band 20 times. Sure, yeah. And, um, and you know, I miss that part of it. You yeah. know, going to Incubus concert, I didn't go this year, didn't feel comfortable going. And uh, mm. my kids went. Uh-huh. You know, it was weird. First time, you know, my kids went, I didn't. That's funny. Um, and I miss that part of it. Yeah. And, but it's because of that, because I, I, I've met so many Incubus fans over the year that all had those great moments. And so for me, it was it was the reminder that those people were feeling about Incubus, the things that I remember about the mm-hmm. Rolling Stones or Led yeah. Zeppelin, where right. it was just like, I can't believe we're here. Mm-hmm. I can't believe they're right there. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty cool. I had I spent a little time with, with the band. Uh, a guy that worked for us grew up with Mikey, uh-huh. and they did a... a little drum and bass project together uh-huh. kind of early on. I don't uh-huh. know if you remember that. Shout out to Kyle if you're listening. Uh, but he was he was close friends with the band. Yeah. With Kyle, I know. Yeah, Kyle He Morton. looks like he's an Incubus fan. Yeah, he's a... <laughs> he's Mikey knows line. everybody. Mikey sure. it, it was the uh, the greatest networker amongst the band. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I miss talking to Mikey a little bit, too. We don't talk that much anymore. But uh, That's he, cool. he was the guy. Everybody would go, there's a guy in Inc. I go, Mike Einstein, nine years. They go, that, that's the guy. That's the guy. Yeah, the guitar player. Yeah, yeah that's, that's him, Mikey. Nice. All right, well, a couple of final questions as we wrap up. Um, you use the motto, fuck the gatekeepers, a lot on mm-hmm. the show, mm-hmm. which I love. And so I'm curious, how do you put that to work in your own business? Well, first let me say that the the fuck the gatekeepers isn't me like winding up the gatekeepers as most people think. Right? Yeah, you know it's it's really kind of like the Marines have their battle cry, hoorah or whatever it is, right? That's like my personal battle cry. Yeah, which is says that you're gonna face any number of obstacles out there in the music program director, the club owner that won't take your calls, the A and R guy that won't return your emails, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. and that rather than cry about that, you just go fuck the gatekeepers and you go mm-hmm. right. And so that's my kind of my less than gentle personal mantra. Sure. Um, but the interesting thing is, is that more often than not, the gatekeeper is looking at you right in the mirror. You know, it's it's all the yeah. uh, questions you ask and answer yourself, all the questions that you don't ask that should be asked. Yeah. Um, and all of that. And so the fuck the gatekeepers when it comes to the music business is really in the simplest form is, hey, it's tough. I get it. What are you going to do about it? Me? I'm going to say, fuck the gatekeepers. Let's make this happen somehow. So give us a fuck the gatekeepers moment in Ren Man MB. In Ren Man MB? Um, less in, in M, you know, with Ren Man MB because Ren Man MB is just kind of a, 
I don't even know how to describe it. It's it, it started as a hobby kind of thing, in 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 different times of play, and it's kind of taken on a life of its own. And I really do enjoy talking to people. I enjoy sitting here talking with you folks. But if there were no cameras, if there was nothing, this would be yeah. this fun, you know. Um, you know. But there's a business element to everything, right? And uh, you know, you guys put on thing here. You got to hire people. You got to get a studio and all that kind. Of, there's a lot of work that goes sure. on and all that stuff, and um, and which requires help and so forth. And uh, so my big challenge, fuck the gatekeepers moment, is how do I <clears throat> how do I keep doing this and and find a way to do that so that I you know that my hobby doesn't turn into a financial liability. Right. And uh, so in some ways, I'm just like the artist out right. there now. More Brandon would kid me about it in in. And now you know what it feels like to be an artist. You know, I got in front of the camera instead of behind it. And, uh, and I think it was, uh, turns out to be ever so true. And so I struggle with, you know, how long do you do this? Mm -hmm. You know, when you keep writing checks in addition to all the work, I think it would be easier for me. But that's the manager that I can't escape that scorekeeping. That's why I'm not truly an artist, yeah. you know, yeah. and why I'm not a culture <laughs> Guy, like so many mm -hmm. of the people you've had on the show, I looked at your list of folks and thought, wow, this is a fucking talk about being the outlier. You know, <laughs> you know, um, that scorecard guy. So, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know how I rank, but every day I, I, it's, I don't want to, I, I, sometimes every day I wake up like golf now going, today I, I'm not, this is the last one, or this is, you know, and, yeah. and I keep, yeah, showing up. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Can't so I'll keep that. showing up, folks. That's yeah. great. For a while. I love it. Yeah. I love it. And then just thinking back to your days as a promoter and a, as a music fan, um, what are some favorite shows that you've seen over Talked the years? Talked about one the other day with uh, Murphy, you know, never forget. You two, um, Joshua Tree, L.A. Coliseum. Yeah. yeah. Before they even, before you two would put a video screen on the yeah, if, you, if anybody could believe that, there no, we don't use video. There was that point where that would look like you were trying to. Or... I went to that show in uh, Shoreline Amphitheater. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, that was one. That and was there amazing. was a little. There was a there was a platform off to the side of the stage, you know. And at the Coliseum, you know, they have like it's like a hundred steps down from the backstage area down to the stage. So when the show would start, the lights would drop, right? And so behind the stage, only a precious few people could see what was going on, or the people with the shitty seats on the side, mm -hmm. and they drop. The tour manager would drop that flashlight, and you could see him coming down one step at a time. And and then all of a sudden, the audience now knows they're coming in that mm -hmm. building thing. And then, bang! And it just went. And I remember sitting there with Murph going, "Fuck, this is unbelievable." Yeah, so cool. Our party, everybody probably looking at us, going, "Who are those two fucking guys?" Into which you'd go, "Not important. Right. <laughs> don't ruin it. Don't ruin our moment here." Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's that was cool. one. Nice. Rolling Stones, I'll never forget, first show. I saw the Rolling Stones, 1972, 3 o'clock, matinee show at the Forum. They played two shows one night. How cool. They had a big tongue in front of the stage there with me and my buddies and a bowl of hash and, and amongst other things. And uh, yeah. boom, show start, boom, out Mick jumps out through the freaking tongue. Ding, ding. <laughs> and it just, I just go... God, we just exploded. My buddy's hair actually caught on fire. <laughs> we put it out and say, pass it, man. Come on. Don't hog it, Gilbert, you fuck. That's awesome. <laughs> so, That's fantastic. Anyway. Steve Rennie, thanks, man. No I problem. appreciate you being here. Awesome. That was Thank awesome. You. All right, that was fun.
much much less stress sitting over here. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's nice. fun. I, I it's awesome just listening to your stories and insights. I appreciate it. Yo, that was Steve Rennie. I think you might be smarter than when we started if you listen carefully. I love that dude, man. He had so many good things to say, even though you know his references were all about rock, which I don't know that much about. But hopefully you enjoyed it. If you did, leave us a comment on Twitter at Rebel Radio Net. Or uh, write it, you know what? Write us a letter for the holidays. Address it to Rebel Radio and Santa. And maybe the, uh, the Elf on the Shelf will be watching out for you this holiday season. Hey, come back next week. We got Casper and Rusko, two of the godfathers of dubstep. Uh, if you're not familiar with dubstep, these dudes really helped put it on the map back in the day, and they've, they've been on hiatus. And are coming back for more. We get into all that next week on Rebel Radio. Peace.